This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. To my disappointment, I have to report that effective at 12.01 a.m. this morning, we instituted a lockout of Major League players. The radical proposals have come from the other side. The other side has proposed to completely eliminate salary arbitration, which is one of the signature accomplishments of this union. You're not surprised, are you? We all knew baseball was headed here. We all knew we'd end up in a lockout. Welcome back to the Athletic Baseball Show. I'm Evan Drellick, senior baseball writer for The Athletic. I just got back from Texas uh, from a hotel outside of Dallas where bargaining sessions between Major League Baseball and the Players Association took place Monday to Wednesday. Obviously didn't go too well. Ken Rosenthal, our captain, joins me in the second part of the show. We're going to go through What's next? Our thoughts, our feelings on the lockout. But first, we've got some audio for you. Let's wind through what happened in Dallas and what Rob Manfred, the commissioner, had to say in a press conference Thursday and what the union's top officials, Tony Clark and Bruce Meyer, said in a press conference about an hour and a half after Manfred held his. It's important to remember the owners didn't have to lock out the players, but it was obvious they were never going to wait. It's become standard practice in all the sports leagues to lock out if a CBA expires and you don't have a new deal. Manfred, in explaining his justification for it, was leaning on the sense of pressure a work stoppage can produce. You know, look, it's part of the um, theory that underlies the National Labor Relations Act, right? People need pressure sometimes to get to an agreement. Candidly, we didn't feel that sense of pressure. Um, uh, from the other side uh, during the course of this week. Now, you might start to detect a theme throughout this episode, but Tony Clark suggested the lockout won't actually achieve what Manfred suggested it will. From the outset, it seems as if the the league has been more uh, interested in uh, the appearance of bargaining than bargaining itself. Uh, to be clear, uh, and we've said this repeatedly, um, the, the, the league was not required to declare uh, a lockout. That decision, the decision to impose a lockout, uh, was a, a conscious decision made by the league. Um, and contrary to the statement uh, that imposing the lockout would be helpful in bringing uh, negotiations to a conclusion, uh, players consider it unnecessary uh, and provocative. Uh, this the lockout won't pressure uh, or intimidate players uh, into a deal that they don't believe is fair. They were never going to get a deal done in Dallas. The best you could have hoped for was that there was enough momentum that the owners might have been convinced to hold off on a lockout to say, okay, we'll give this another couple of weeks. Obviously, didn't get there. In the week prior to arriving in Dallas, so last week, not this week, MLB made its latest economic proposals. On Tuesday, the middle day of three, the union made its most recent set, kind of a global economic proposal. Sometimes they'll propose something in one bucket. This was the the kit and caboodle of, of economics. What happened after the union made that proposal on Tuesday, on the final day on Wednesday, is contested. The union says 
the league didn't actually counter. The league, though, thinks it did make a proposal. You, you said, Rob, that um, you guys made best efforts to make a deal. Mm -hmm. Could you have made more proposals throughout this process? Well, you, can, you could make more proposals. We made, I mean, I'll give you one example. We made a proposal yesterday um, that if it had been accepted, I believe would have provided a pretty clear path to make an agreement. Yeah, but the union didn't see it that way. Bruce Meyer, the union's lead negotiator, said that MLB would only make a proposal if the union agreed to certain preconditions. They, they proposed to make a proposal if we would, in advance, agree to drop a number of key demands before seeing what was in their proposal. So we don't consider that to be a proposal. You know, the repeated uh, assertion that, that uh, they came to Dallas and tried their hardest to reach a deal when, again, on the key issues, they didn't actually make a proposal in Dallas. In the big picture, as most people know at this point, player unhappiness is driving the conversation. Players want changes. They've wanted them for years. I think players have been commoditized and are viewed more as assets than they ever have before. And that is manifesting itself not just in how, how players are, are treated, acknowledged, and or not respected, but it's manifesting itself on the field in ways that's markedly different than how we've seen before. But the league to this point feels that the union's just asking for too much. I, I wouldn't expect the league to say anything other than that. But Manfred came out swinging over what the union is actually asking for. The Players Association, as is their right, made an aggressive set of proposals in May, and they have refused to budge from the core of those proposals. Things like a shortened reserve period, a $100 million reduction in revenue sharing and salary arbitration for the whole two-year class are bad for the sport, bad for the fans, and bad for competitive balance. That's a pretty strong statement to say that everything the union's asking for uh, is bad for the sport. And again, you're probably catching the pattern. But guess what? Union doesn't think that's right. We feel our proposals would positively affect um, competitive balance, competitive integrity. Uh, you know, we've all seen in recent years a problem with uh, teams that that don't seem to be trying their hardest to win to win games or, or put the best uh, teams on the field. Uh, our proposals address that in a number of ways, um, and we've we've offered to uh, build in advantages for small market teams. One thing to keep in mind with bargaining is it is bargaining. Neither side is going to come away with everything it wants. I think if you gave the players truth serum, they would tell you they know they're not going to get everything they're asking for. Both the commissioner and the union said they're prepared to make concessions. We'll see how much that's actually true as time goes on. I'm sure they are. But the players to this point feel like they're getting stonewalled. They feel like MLB simply is refusing to discuss the changes they see as important. The league has consistently said on revenue sharing, they will not change it, period. So that's just an example of what we've been saying, that the league really hasn't been prepared to negotiate. Are there other topics they said they won't negotiate on? Yeah, it's a whole list of topics that they told us they will not negotiate. They, they will not agree, for example, to expand salary or eligibility. Um, they will not agree to, uh, to any path for any player to achieve free agency earlier. 
They will not agree to anything that would allow players to have additional ways to get service time, to combat service time manipulation. Um, they've told us on all of those things they will not agree. We, on the other hand, have indicated that we're prepared to continue talking about anything and everything, and we haven't drawn any lines in the sand on, on anything. But that's what we've been confronted with. So, yeah, as you can see and hear, things are going really well in Major League Baseball right now. How long the work stoppage, the lockout lasts is really anyone's guess. The start of spring training in early February is the first real pressure point. Neither side, both were asked, but neither side would give any specificity to deadlines or drop dead points on when something would have to get done lest you interfere with spring training or even the regular season. Yeah, I, I just think speculating about drop dead deadlines at this point, not productive. Um, so I'm not going to do it. Encouraging. I know. All very encouraging. Here for more on the lockout is the Athletics baseball captain, Ken Rosenthal. Good morning, Kenny. How are you doing? Doing well, Evan. How are you? Uh, I'm a little tired. Uh, a little tired, just to be honest with you. Um, can I start off by talking about my feelings? Is that okay? Yeah, let's talk feelings. All right. I, I, sometimes I need to let it out a little bit. You know, there was this weird buildup of anticipation for years that we would have a lockout, likely going to have a lockout. Are they actually going to do it? And then, you know, it, it, it arrives and, and you're there. And the feeling I'm left with is that it's just, it's kind of foreign. You know, I've never seen it before. I'm 34. I, I don't remember 1994, the strike. We haven't had anything since then. Um, and I just, it's, it, it's a little strange. It's like, well, what happens now? I mean, we know they keep bargaining, but do you have any of that same feeling? It's just kind of an odd place to be. For me, the oddity was more the craziness of the last week with all the free agent signings and a couple of trades and an intensity in November for transactions that we've never had before. It's unprecedented and it was unprecedented simply because the lockout for the well, the deadline for the lockout was looming. That was the whole motivation. And that is what made it so strange for me because we had that and this incredible intensity. It was beyond even winter meetings level. And then suddenly, poof, no more. And it's going to be no more for a while. Now, I've covered a few of these, 94, 95, and there were a few after I began my baseball writing career in 87. I can't remember the exact years, but there were a couple before even 94 and 95. It was routine back then for this to happen. Yeah, yeah. And that part of it does not phase me a little bit. It's Yes, it's been a quarter century plus since we've gone through this in baseball. And yes, it is unusual. And it's also a different time when... The lockout came down on Wednesday at midnight, and then the MLB.com site was scrubbed of all the likenesses and images of players and stories about active players. That was something that did not take place in 94, 95. It was quite <laughs> jarring. And it was there was no MLB.com in 94, 95. There was no internet. So that was really something that was different and that whole aspect of it and the social media environment is going to be a different element in this particular stoppage. 
Uh, Al Gore hadn't invented the internet by 1994. I can't remember exactly when uh, the interweb I started. I don't believe he had, but <laughs> I, I don't know the exact date. But it wasn't a factor. Like I think, I think it existed, but right, it, it wasn't a factor. I was going to ask you later about free agency, but you just touched on it, so we might as well do it now. W- were you then surprised in the end by the way free agency, free agency went? Uh, you know, I, when we talked in early November. Your feeling was that some clients like uh, Boris clients like Simeon could end up signing uh, early, but it, it, you didn't see it going quite this crazy, right? No, no, I did not. And even the idea that Seeger and Simeon would go, which Jeff Passan wrote on ESPN.com pretty early on, I believe at the GM meetings. And I read that and I had heard a little bit about that, but I was still skeptical because it's not generally Boris's style to go quickly, though he did it at the 2019 winter meetings when he had Cole, Rendon, and that crowd all signed within days. Strasburg was another one. So I just was not sure that it would go the way it did. In fact, I would say I probably thought it would not go the way it did simply because once a CBA is reached, historically, that is when the money starts to flow. Because owners are confident, they're secure, they've got five, six years of labor peace, all is well, and they spend. So I figured, okay, the guys will wait, they'll know that that money is coming, and that's what they'll do. But a couple of other things drove players and teams. The uncertainty of, say, a two-week free agency in February after this thing is settled, assuming it is settled by that time, and there is a brief window of free agency, which we're still going to have with a lot of good players. But that fear of that, being caught in that scramble and that pressure and that tension was something players and teams, certain players and teams, did not want to entertain. So guys jumped. And certain players I heard, Seeger was one, did not want uncertainty, did not want to wait another two months before figuring out where he was going to be next year. And then as a often happens in the game once one thing happens there's momentum and the deadlines drive momentum in our sport always and really in all businesses so in the end i was still a little taken aback by how many players signed stroman for instance i didn't think he was going to sign even robbie ray his people did not expect to sign they figured hey we'll wait we'll be the Bella the ball come February, all good. And then Seattle came at them, and they felt good about it. The Cubs came at Stroman. He felt good about it, and it was why not. So, yes, we had an incredible amount of action, and it was a lot of fun for fans. And that's the problem here, just from that perspective, from the game itself. Now, it's nothing for a couple of months. Well, when we say there's a window whenever this thing restarts, like assuming it does restart either – during spring training or right before it, it's not that they, a player couldn't sign once spring training restarts. It's simply that most guys are going to want to, right, just as a point of uh, of clarity. It's not, it's not like they can't sign uh, once spring training starts, but it, it, people will want to be in camps. Right, and what I was really referring to was what I anticipate, Evan, which is a settlement around February 1st, okay? Yeah. And then two weeks leading up to spring training where it's just craziness. Now, you're right. It might linger into spring training or whatever spring training is and take place all or mostly during that time. 
That would be nuts. <laughs> but yeah. I expect there will be some build-up period before spring training starts, no matter when this thing ends. All right, so how bad is this for baseball right now? Is it progressively bad every day? Is it not that bad until you start messing around with spring training? The fact that MLB.com is scrubbed, the fact that you have, you know, like if they solved it next week, do we sit here and go, well, oh, it wasn't that bad? Uh, or, or even now, is some damage already done? Some damage is done. Even the commissioner acknowledged that in his remarks to the media. He said, hey, it's bad for baseball. We know that. And it's bad in, in a number of different ways. One, the activity stops. So the sport is out of the headlines except for labor discussion. That's not a healthy thing for any sport. Two, it's bad because there is uncertainty now about how long this thing will go. There is a certain percentage of fans that get really upset when this kind of thing happens and perhaps get turned off by the sport. Now, my feeling is they generally come back, and even after the 94-95 strike, they came back, and by 98, this sport was roaring again. And even by late 95, with Ripken setting their consecutive games record, things were kind of in a good place. And then Sosa and McGuire really brought it back, however tainted it might have been in retrospect. Fans came back. The sport obviously grew to the point where revenues grew and grew and grew and we had record revenues in this decade so i expect once this thing is resolved that yes things will return to normal but yet there's certainly damage done and one thing that bothers me and jason stark wrote about this is that we'll maybe get the economics resolved and all of that will be kind of in a different place i don't know if it'll be a better place yet but it'll be in a different place i would assume I don't think it's going to be status quo once this is settled, but we'll still have the on-field issues. And what I'm talking about are the rules that have been discussed that would improve the game aesthetically. And that has to happen. And Jason's story is really good because it points out that because of this tension between the sides, they're not even there. They're not even talking about it because they have to deal with all of the other things first. And that, to me, is already a loss for 2022. Right. Everybody assumes that after all the talk about a pitch clock and pace of play issues and on-field stuff and the experiments that the, the that were being conducted in the minors that, that the commissioner's office had conducted in the minors, that well, of course, this new CBA would produce changes and they would come to an agreement on this. But basically, if I'm understanding it right, you have one side, the players that wants it to be part of the discussion right now, and another side, the owners that don't. Because by including it, you know, the owners basically look at the on-field stuff as a, as a non-economic factor, and they don't want to be leveraged to give up an, something you know, that's worth a, a dollar amount for an on-field change. Is that a pretty safe, uh, succinct yes, way of putting it? It is, and also the owners feel that this is never something that's been part of the CBA. It's always been discussed separately, rules changes and things of that nature. And also, the commissioner has the unilateral ability to implement rules changes if he gives the union a year's notice. So it can be done separately. Now, he has not done that in recent years. He's refrained from implementing the pitch clock with a year's notice because he's not wanted to inflame the union 
on that particular issue. He wanted to get some kind of agreement. I assumed all along that agreement would be part of the CBA. Why wouldn't it be? The CBA sets the landscape for the sport. But you're right. The owners want it differently, and that's fine as long as they get it done. I don't see how in, on earth they're going to get it done for the 2022 season, and that's another season lost. So you're always on the ball. Um, your your, your ro- most recent notes column, I, I thought, very succinctly emphasized that this is about money. Um, and it, it's, in a way, a statement of the obvious. Somebody can sit there and go, well, of course it's about money. What else would it be about? But at the same time, you know, both sides in their public stances, there can be a lot of obfuscation. I, I actually do think the players have been more direct in this regard. We need to I get paid more. Um, but the league arguments, you know, you listen to Manfred's press conference, starts harping on competitiveness. Well, I, I, look, I mean, I, I've watched this game, you know, as an insider for more than three decades. I, I think that most people who understand the game realize that in our smaller markets, it's a lot harder to win than it is in our bigger markets. If we translate what competitiveness means, it means money, right? It, that, that's, that's what they're talking about is uh, how much money does it take a team to be able to compete. Um, does the league avoid talking about money directly because it thinks that it's an easier narrative to sell that, oh, this, you know, this is a, an integrity competitiveness uh, of the game issue. Is that an easier thing for, for the public to latch onto in their eyes? Yes, it is. And no one wants to directly talk about money, but you're right. And I've thought about this too, Evan. The union has been more direct in its desires here. It wants to gain economically and account for some of the things that is lost or some of the differences that have arisen because of the previous CBAs that have changed their economic outlook, right? And yes, they have been pretty open about that. Now, what the commissioner's office will say is this is about competitive balance. It's about making the game as competitive as possible and keeping all these teams involved. Well, in their perfect world, and we've seen this in a proposal, it's a lower luxury tax threshold and a floor. So you get more compression between the small market teams and the high revenue teams. Well, okay, but that's not what the union wants, obviously. They want those high revenue teams spending as much as possible. So, yeah, you're right. Both sides will engage in this cloaking and blaming and the finger pointing. It's coming. It's started already. And I was a little surprised that the commissioner was as forward as he was in stating what he said about the union, how they won't negotiate, this, that, and the other thing. We've heard this off the record for a long time, but that was the first time he's really gone after them on the record. He's clearly frustrated. And I know fans out there, they want to know one thing. When are we getting a deal? What's the deal going to look like? Because that will affect, of course, the way transactions are conducted and everything in the sport. And when are we playing? They don't want to hear what they're about to hear, which is a lot of mudslinging back and forth. Yeah, Twitter, Twitter's a special place. Uh, it, That's one it's, word. It, it's, it's one way to put it. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. I, I don't know how much we can judge off of Twitter reactions, but it it did seem to me that Manfred's letter did not go over particularly well. I don't know what version of that letter uh, would have gone over particularly well. But you know, even in his press conference, th- there was a point where he was asked about the futures of club employees. Right? It's not just the players and the, and the fans who get affected in this; it's the people who work for the teams potentially. Um, and he was asked if people could be furloughed or were laid off and he said nothing's going to happen to the central office and uh, on the club level nothing was imminent. No danger in the central office. We've had conversations with the clubs. There's no expectations at this point in time that there's going to be furloughs of front office employees. He didn't rule out anybody getting laid off in the future but I, I, I thought it was a moment you know this, this is my, my PR advice I guess um, you know a moment where you, he could have stepped back and said Look, I know that this affects everybody in the sport, and I know that our employees are worried, um, you know, and, and kind of offered some kind of basic attempt to uh, assuage those fears. Um, he didn't do that. And, and I find often he doesn't kind of take what seems to be the, I don't know, obvious uh, PR grab that, that, would, that would help him. Um, and, and, you know, look, I, I, I want people to be who they are. I, I don't want him to say something he doesn't mean. But it, that stood out to me a little bit, that, that there's still a little bit of a lack of public touch uh, that's missing there. I don't know if you agree with that. I do agree with that. And that's a really good way to put it, actually, a lack of public touch. And for lack of a better term, maybe a lack of grace in certain situations. Now, Rob Manfred is a really smart guy. I know he has said some things that people have found to be dumb. I know maybe he has done some things that people might think are dumb. But anyone who knows him, the union people included, will tell you the guy is brilliant. He is brilliant, particularly in labor negotiations. He's done a couple of CBAs. More I, than I don't couple, know if actually. everybody at the union would tell you that. but he, <laughs> yes. uh, They think he's smart. Uh, you know, they he's think smart. he's intelligent. He's they might not like the way he goes about it. They, they respect his intelligence. I know yes. that. So. He did not come off well. Now, what I find interesting, and he often does not come off well. That's just part of who he is. He's not that polished. Okay. What I find really interesting, and you're right, Twitter is not a proper gauge, but it seems to me that fans' perspectives have changed a little bit. Back when I started, and my first year was 1987, I would say fans generally blame the players, did not like the players in work stoppage situations, felt that they were making too much money, 
They're playing a kid's game, and what's their problem? And always we know what the players earn. We never know what the owners are making, except for the two teams, the Jays and the Braves, that have to open their books because they're publicly traded companies. So it's natural for fans to side against the players. We all played baseball growing up. We all think these guys are getting away with all kinds of luck because they are the fortunate few, right, who make the money and play the game. But it seems lately, and and again, it's hard to judge what the public sentiment is because there's... Because Twitter Twitter doesn't represent this country. Twitter doesn't represent it, and our country in every way has many, many opinions on everything. But fans are definitely, a certain percentage of fans is definitely more savvy to the fact that the owners have it pretty good. And they are tired, that percentage of fans, of hearing how difficult it is for the owners with the economics of the game when we see what's going on, when they have all these income streams. I don't have to go through everything, but there's a certain percentage of fans that just are more sympathetic to the players. And that is surprising for the reasons I stated, that we know what the players make and fans are often jealous of the players. And it's also surprising because in this country right now, the labor movement is not very popular. So we're seeing some things that are a little bit unusual. And I do believe that most fans, not most fans, some fans, see what has happened here. See that the owners had an advantage in the CBA and pressed it to the max. And that is why the players are so upset. This is something that has been building for years. We know this, Evan. We've covered it for years. We've been writing about it for years. And it happened because, essentially, after getting crushed in these negotiations for years, the owners kind of had the advantage in a few and, like I said, went all out to take advantage of what those agreements gave them. Yeah, the only, the only thing I would say is, it is if you look at the backdrop of the country, even, even in the last couple weeks, last few days, I, I think... There's a a strike that's, uh, I believe, wrapping up with uh, the Kellogg's workers. There's a strike with John Deere workers. And you have this thing that's now been termed the big quit, where where people post-pandemic are leaving their jobs. It it does. So when you talk about the public sentiment, um, I I, got to believe that there's some element of um, what's going on around everybody that in general there, there seems to be for workers um, a, a little bit more of an awakening uh, over, over time and really in, in, in recent time. And, and that, that's, that's well, probably a challenge for the league as, as they move through it. Maybe. I don't want to speak with any expertise on that because I'm, I don't really know. You and me uh, both. It's just, it's just my sentiment or my feeling watching reaction and listening to people that – it's a little bit different than in the past. In the past, yeah, yeah. it seemed to me the players got the brunt of this. And I'm not so sure that's going to happen this time. I'm not so sure it has happened to this point. So it's going to be really interesting to see how all that unfolds. Um, what do you think the players... We know the players are the ones who, who want significant change. The, the league stand seems to be pretty much we're okay with the status quo they keep offering the status quo in different ways what do you think the players actually would have to get done here for them to feel good about it for media and fans to kind of say okay they achieved what they they set out to achieve what what does a victory 
even if it's a partial victory, and it's never going to be a complete victory, for players look like. It seems to me that they want either or both of early free agency or earlier free agency and earlier salary arbitration. I'm not so sure that's going to happen. But there are other ways for the players to make gains. And I'm not going to give away something I'm working on, but I've got some ideas on this. And earlier free agency and earlier arbitration, we can discuss that, but it is problematic for the teams for the fear of what it would do to the small market clubs. And I don't know that the players will get there on that particular front. But there are other ways. Raising the threshold would be one to kind of make things better. Raising the minimum salary. We can discuss all these things. And if that's how it looks in the end and they get certain things out of it, okay. You don't have to have earlier free agency and earlier arbitration to improve your overall economic picture. Now, what I'm curious about here, and we've talked about the owners and their issues and Manfred and his issues. What I'm curious about is how the players are going to hold together because they've talked tough and I understand they have grievances and I understand that right now they're all fired up and ready to go. Well, nothing's at stake yet. Nothing has been at stake for this generation of players really in any regard of their careers, in any aspect. These guys, even the oldest players, were not part of 94-95. So I hear what they're saying, and I understand that they're upset. But again, when, it, when push comes to shove and the economics are at stake, when their salaries are at stake, and when things are really kind of at crunch time, we'll see what their resolve is. It's easy to talk tough now. But one question is going to be, how will they hold together? And the question applies to the other side, too, because there will be divisions among owners. There will be pressure on owners, too. And that is going to be a really fascinating element of all this. Are are the reactions you're getting varied in the the number of people you're talking to? Whether that be how long people think this will go uh, or even the importance of this or the kind of the merit of it on either side uh, is it a wide range or or people kind of unified and like yeah no this is going to go forever and, and of course we're here i don't know how it cannot extend into january let's just look at what happened this week and they met in dallas to supposedly get this thing or hopefully get this thing resolved it went nowhere they barely even spoke in terms of minutes logged. I remember past CBA negotiations when it's round the clock. We're going all night at the end. Midnight oil. Yeah. Yeah. And there was none of that. They were walking in and walking out. You guys were chronically at this meeting was seven minutes. This meeting was 45. It was nothing. So what is to make me believe that's going to change in a week or two weeks or even a month when they're just not there? They're not speaking the same language, but they haven't spoken the same language in several years now. So it would seem to me, and I believe it seems to a lot of people in the sport, that what will drive this is what, will dr- what drove free agency just now, a deadline. And a deadline is effectively spring training. Now, you could go even longer, right, and impact the season, but no one wants to lose games. 
Losing games means losing money for players, means losing money for owners, and further damage to the sport. So, ultimately, you probably need a month for spring training. Only a month. We have six weeks, but you probably only need a month. I'm thinking February 1st, two weeks of free agency, and then get to spring training. And maybe on time, maybe a little late, but that's how I envision it. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, I, right before we started recording, I went back and listened to the end of our, our first talk on our great labor show here, uh, where, where we both did predictions. And you said you thought mid-January to early February, and I said I think it's early January. I, I, I am now more pessimistic about that, um, and, and that's probably being maybe unduly swayed by just how dug in both sides seem to be and, and uh, how... I don't want to say entirely unproductive, but yeah, the, the, the meetings in Dallas were unproductive. Um, do you feel less optimistic now than you did a month ago or in early November? I feel the same. And what happened in Dallas did not surprise me in the least. In fact, it would have surprised me if they had made any progress or appeared to get close. We've been covering this, Evan. We know how far apart their proposals were, what we knew of them, and... Again, two different languages. So what is to make anyone believe that this was going to be resolved quickly? And at this point, I don't even see it getting going again until January, really. They may meet and mess around on little things, which they've been doing for, I don't know, a year now. We've had years to get this resolved. I went back and read, I was looking for a quote in something I wrote. So I went back and read something I had written in January 2019, that's almost, well, it is almost three years ago. And it was effectively predicting what, what, that this was going to happen. And I wasn't the only one, believe me, we were all writing it everywhere. And yet they couldn't stop it. They couldn't get their acts together in time. Of course, the pandemic hit and that changed a lot. I, we get it. But man, we all knew this was coming. And now that it's here... Again, until there's pressure, I don't expect any resolution. Yeah, last thing. It, if, if you kind of look between the lines, I, and I know you don't want to give away too much of what you may or may not be working on, but I think you can start to see a little bit of the pathway to a deal in that the league has shown a willingness to move on league minimum salary, not as much as the players want, but there's right. at least an understanding that's got to go up. There's been some willingness on um, the CBT, not as much as the players want, and probably not as much as it would have to end up being. I, I can't, you know, the current number is 210. Uh, MLB proposed to jump it to 214, and then by the end of the deal, it would get to 220. I, 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 I got to believe the players are going to want more than that. Um, wh where it does get trickier, as you point out, is, is the arbitration, the free agency, getting to those things earlier. If I had to guess, I would say that the players of those two would be more concerned about arbitration because it, it ties to getting players paid younger, which is really more of the concern. I would agree. You, well, you know, once and there the guys are ways get, to address that without giving them all the way back to two years. You could make the Super 2 class bigger. You know, right. Evan, the one thing I want to say, and I've kind of thought this all along, this is not as complicated as these two sides will have you believe. It's not. It can be resolved. And in fact, in the end, we're going to have a deal that 
has just what you included, just what you talked about there, some other elements, of course, too. It's not going to be this dramatic departure. There are going to be differences, maybe even a significant difference or two. But what bothers me most about this whole thing, and Manfred could say and Tony Clark can say this is not a relationship problem. This is not anything to do with that. This is simply a matter of hammering out a deal and the people and the personalities are not significant. I take exception with that. And the reason I take exception with that is because I believe if you give me two GMs who are really smart and give me two agents who are really smart and give me two days and lock them in a room, this could get done. (laughs) That's my feeling. Ah. Kenny, you're the best. Uh, thank you. I'm sure we're going to have some more time to go through this, but let's hope oh, it's not too much. Oh, we can do this every much. day, Evan. We'll have plenty of time. <laughs> <laughs> not like we got anything else to do. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Evan. Before I became a big Killers fan, I was a big Counting Crows fan. Still am. It's going to be very hard for me not to tweet or write in my story some reference to a long December the entire month. Long December. Anyway, coming up next week on the Athletic Baseball Show is Starkville. That's on Tuesday. Thanks for listening to another episode of our fun labor show. You can save 33% on an annual subscription of The Athletic by going to theathletic.com slash baseball show. I'll see you next week. <laughs>